Good morning, Three Rivers Church. It's a pleasure to be with you and be together uh, with one another as we worship the Lord together. Hey, a couple announcements. Number one, if you have a cell phone, take it out, look at it, silence it, or turn it off. That would be absolutely fantastic. Number two, don't forget, after the service, if you would, don't let your little ones play on the stage or behind the curtains. They can get cut by sharp things or have things fall on them, okay? So if they're playing up there, we'll politely ask them to move and ask you to come get them, okay? So if you heard and understood that, if you'd raise your right hand. Educator in me, come out. Praise God. Look at that. Awesome. You responded. That's absolutely fantastic. Also, uh, notes are available for you this morning on the blog, MitchJolly.com. So you can go there and take a look at uh, notes and follow along with me. We're studying through the five solas as we approach the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And we're looking at these five foundational statements that are a result of... Uh, multiple people working throughout this period in history, not just Martin Luther, who we'll study on uh, the first Sunday after All Saints Day, uh, but others um, in the Reformation. These five statements are five pillars on which we as Protestants really build everything doctrinally that we are about. We started last week with sola scriptura, scripture alone. We said that is the foundation on which everything else in Protestant life is constructed. We start with scripture. It is scripture alone. And so scripture is our foundation. We go to the Bible. The Bible's the beginning, the middle, and the end of our foundation of what is true and what is right. It is the final say we include reason, we include logic, we include wise people, we include counsel from wise people, we include history. But at the end of the day, the final say rests in Scripture. Today we're going to take a look at grace alone and faith alone. Grace alone and faith alone. So what we're going to do, uh, before we launch into any background, we're just simply going to look at a keynote text from the Scriptures, because it's Scripture alone. That became the foundation for which many things that Luther himself wrote and said uh, it fueled. And so it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. And so uh, I'm going to read it. And then we're going to come back and plow our way through it. And then we're going to ask a couple of questions. What is grace alone? What is faith alone? Uh, what is the role of works? And then... Uh, what do we do with this now in obedience? What are some practical steps that we can take as a result of what we've read and studied today? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's plow through this passage. We'll go through sort of phrase by phrase, line by line. Bring out some, some, some gold from that text. And then we're going to look at grace alone and faith alone. The place of works and what we are to do with this today. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now this right here was a big deal, particularly for Luther. This was his sticking point. The Roman Catholic Church uh, said that we people... Still say this today. Said it then. Still say it today. We can obtain grace from God as we act and do along with the merit of Christ or the righteousness of Christ. So we get God's grace by doing, as they would say in some documents, doing our best. And so they said, because of Jesus and His consideration of your best effort, that mingled together, and they used the language of infusion, so you got an infusion of Jesus' righteousness along with your best effort that created your standing before God. Therefore, there was the injection of the sacraments. That was a means of you getting a little more holiness, and then, of course, baptism, which they practiced at at. Infant, the infant stage, they said there's a transference of salvation. And so you add all these things together, you put them along with the infusion of Jesus, do your best, and you could have a right standing before God. There was one problem with Luther, and it was this phrase, you were dead. You were dead. Luther struggled, because Luther asked this question, and it's a great question. How can dead people do their best? That's a good question. How can dead people do their best? So when Luther tacked his 95 Theses up for public debate, which basically the 95 Theses is kind of like in in 1500s, the posting of a blog. It was an invitation to a public debate over particularly these 95 statements that Luther had posted, and he wanted to debate them. And so at the Heidelberg Disputation in 1517, September 1517, Luther set out some theses um, that he wanted to debate. And it was particularly because he had been studying, he, he was a professor of theology, and he had been studying Paul's letters. And as a result of the Scriptures, the Scriptures alone, he was starting to notice that some of what the church taught was conflicting with what the Bible particularly taught. And Thesis 16 at the Heidelberg Disputation says this, The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him, doing his best, adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. That's strong. Luther would write an incredible work after this called The Bondage of the Will. And it would be in response to Erasmus, who was writing his book called The Freedom of the Will, in which Erasmus argued that we had the capacity volitionally to do good things enough to add to the infusion of Christ to get us a right standing before God. And what Luther did is he took this passage and and others, and he came with his 
phenomenal work, which, by the way, it's one of the few things Luther actually thought was good enough to stick around. Didn't like a lot of his own writings. But he thought this one was good, and he's right. If you hadn't read it, it's solid gold. It's called The Bondage of the Will. What Luther said was he believed in a post-fall free will, but insofar as it is only able to do evil. (laughs) Because of the curse, your volitional capacity is so broken that it does evil, it doesn't do good. And we all know that's true, right? How hard do you have to try to sin? You ever noticed how easy sin just comes? But you ever notice how hard good comes? Dude, it's it's like trying to raft upstream at the Okoe. You can't do it. Anybody ever rafted the Okoe? It's easy going downstream, right? You can't raft upstream. Have you noticed doing sin is easy, doing righteousness is hard? That's because this thing called the curse, the fall, has wrecked our volitional capacities. And so Luther said, yeah, post-fall, our will is free. It's free in sin, but it's not free in righteousness. And so he would write this book called The Bondage of the Will, in which he argued that we're dead. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead. That's pretty clear, Right? And so what we see here in this passage is that we are dead people. Apart from Christ, mankind in the fall is dead toward God. All of his faculties are infused with the curse and the virus of the curse wreaks havoc in man. So you were dead in what? Trespasses and sins. So the curse injected the virus of death, and therefore we dwell in death in our sins. And he says, verse 2, in which you once walked. Now he's speaking to Christians at the church at Ephesus. You once walked in this way. You don't anymore. He's made the argument in chapter 1, you're no longer there anymore. But you once walked this way. Following the course of this world. So in what way do sinners outside the grace of God walk? According to the course of this world, who do they follow? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience. So apart from Christ, Luther is arguing, according to Paul, that we are walking according to Satan. We are living in him. He's our leader. He's our little God, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we're dead in that state. And this spirit... The prince of the power of the air is the one who is at work in the sons of disobedience. As opposed to those who are sons of God, who follow Jesus, have the spirit dwelling in them that makes them sons and daughters of God. Those apart from Christ who are dead walk like sons of disobedience. Because that's what they are. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Notice that nature, that work there, because in this dead state we carry out passions. We're passion-driven people. But what are those passions? They're passions of our body and our mind that are dead. In other words, our passions are broken. This is why this glorious truth of Psalm 37, 4 is beautiful. Delight yourself in the Lord, right? And then He puts in you the desires of His heart, right? Those in Christ learn to live according to passion, but not passion... Of the curse. The curse produces passion, but it's passion for sin. It's passion for death. It's passion for unrighteousness. 
Jesus, according to the new covenant work, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, right? He gives us a new heart. He takes out a cold, dead heart, puts in a new heart that's alive and warm to Him. He puts His Spirit in us and causes us to want to walk in His truth so that our passions now shift and change, which is why for the Christian, you find this conflict internally, daily. A desire for good, but evil right there with you. Knocking at the door, seeking to have you. You find that? That's because there are two sets of passions at work in us. Because we have the curse in our body that's still broken, and our mind, but we have a new heart that wants to do good. Thus, Romans chapter 7. If you've never read Romans 7, go read it. You'll find that even the great apostle Paul wrestled this war of, I want to do good, but my body don't want to do good. So I find this thing going on in me and there's a constant wrestling. That's the Christian life. Get used to it. And those who win are those who, Paul says in Romans 8, put a sword in their flesh. Not literally, figuratively. In other words, you've got to kill sin. You have to cut it off. And that sounds eerily like something Jesus said. If you're right, I cause you to sin. Plug it out. Right? In other words, deal severely with it. Because it's leftover curse. So we see here that we lived in the passion of our flesh, the mind and the body, and were by nature, the very nature of the curse, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, who's us? See chapter 1. Who's the us? All those that in Christ Jesus, He has elected for His good purpose and grace. Doesn't tell us why. Just tells us it's according to His good purpose and His good grace. He set us aside to show us the immeasurable riches of Christ. So that as Paul will argue in Romans chapters 10, through the preaching of the gospel, He awakens them to life. They repent and believe. According to this passage, He has shown us His great love and mercy with which He has loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So even, listen, if, you were, if you're in Christ this morning, Jesus loved you even when you were dead in sin. Even when you ignored Him, even when you turned a blind eye to Him, even when you turned a deaf ear to Him, Jesus loved you. But we see here that He, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together is one word in the original language. Made us alive together. Because it tells us something very important. That the work of God in Christ is to make alive people who were dead and he only does it in Christ in other words in Jesus is the only way to be brought from death to life because what were we verse 1 of chapter 2 were dead and only through Christ and in Christ are dead people brought to life so he made us alive together with Christ you seen your role in that yet you can answer you can shake your head because no You've done nothing yet, have you? Have you? Be honest, have you done anything yet in this passage? No. Have you, have you worked good yet? Have you earned any of God's favor yet in this passage? No. This passage is teaching us we're dead. We walk according to Satan. We got the passions of our flesh and our mind warring against us. 
But God's rich in mercy. And when we were still dead with the great love with which He has loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. I've done nothing yet, right? Nothing. Verse 5. And you notice here in verse 5, um, it's, it's kind of like a parenthetical note. Although probably in your Bibles it's a dash. And then a dash after this statement, it's intended to set apart this parenthetical note Paul is making here. He's letting the Ephesians know you were dead, 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 dead. But God's rich in mercy and He's loved you and He made you to get alive together with Christ. And He makes this statement by what? Grace you have been saved. By grace. He wants them to understand you've done nothing, you can do nothing, you are saved by grace alone. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only were you dead and He made you alive, He raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. Now for the Ephesians, this is a big deal. Because they're very spiritual people. The only problem is they worship the wrong things. And they feared the demonic greatly. And so what does Paul comfort them with? Not only were you dead, but now you're alive. He has raised you up and seated you with Christ in these heavenly places. Because Jesus rules there. Spirits don't rule. Jesus rules. So Ephesians, fear not. So he's raised them up and seated them with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that, purpose clause, in the coming ages, he might show, that is point out. In other words, God wants to show something. He might show The immeasurable riches of His, what? Here's our word, grace in, that is in the form of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what's God showing us in verse 1 all the way down through verse 7? He is showing us, He is pointing out for us the absolutely immeasurable riches of His grace in the form of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, there's so much more that we need to do in this passage. We can't do this morning because we're looking at grace alone and faith alone. What you need to see in this passage is, so far, have you done anything else? Have you done something good so that Jesus can infuse a little bit more goodness to help you get there? Have you seen any good you've done yet? Guys, it's okay. I know we're predominantly like maybe afraid to answer, but you can nod and you can do this. If it's unclear, raise your hand. We'll go over it again. But have you done anything good yet? No. No. No No good. Now let me just say this to you. If you want to go back into the Catholicism and earn favor with God, go for it. But I want you to know something. This boy I told you last week, I have no shot. If I have to get an infusion of Jesus to help me along with my, with my goodness, so that with my goodness in Jesus, I'm going to get to God, I'm toast. I don't know if you realize it or not, and here's what I find. This passage is disturbing to people for two ways. Number one, it's disturbing because it injects ideas that are contrary to a humanistic worldview. A human-centered worldview that somehow you're the captain of your fate, the master of your soul, and you rule the universe, and you make ultimate decisions. And if we followed that line of logic to its conclusion, you could walk up on this building, jump off, and sprout wings and fly if you willed it. The only problem is that logic falls flat at 9.8 meters per second squared. You're not ultimate. 
that experiment will prove it. You're broke severely. I'm broke severely. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but this is really good news for us. And so that, that, that creates a heaviness in our heart for another reason. And that reason is we really love to earn favor with God apart from Jesus. It's built into the fallen heart of man to earn favor with God. And you know it, don't you? Because most of our decisions are done with guilt, not love for Jesus. We're guilted into things because we think if I do this, Jesus will like me more. Or God may not let that bad thing happen to me. This passage rips the t-shirt off that idol and exposes it for everything that it is. So what I want you to do, Three Rivers Church, is find the great solace of grace alone. Grace alone. Not grace plus effort. Not faith plus effort, but grace alone. And faith alone. Let's keep going. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And notice, he just in case, just in case you didn't get it, Paul inserts this one little sentence. And this is not your own doing. What's not my own doing? Grace and faith. Grammatically connected here is grace and faith to the ending of this sentence. You've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, grace is not your doing. Faith is not your doing. They're completely holy and utterly of God. And he even says, just, I love it. Because scripture alone, just in case you were wondering further, he says, it is the gift of God. Grace is God's gift. Faith is God's gift. Verse 9, just in case we didn't get that, He says, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Because here's the deal. Let me ask you this question. Why are you in Jesus and your neighbor not? If you can answer that question by saying that you did something more than them, you were a little more intellectual than they did, or maybe you studied something a little harder, and Jesus made more sense to you than it did to them, guess what you just did? You boasted. You earned something before God. They haven't done what I've done. And Paul wants them to understand, you're in Christ and you've been raised up and seated with Christ, not because of anything you've done. It's by God's gift alone, so that you can't boast. And now this is going to have an incredible outworking on our last point of obedience. There's no boasting. Nobody in this room can boast. Nobody can say, man, I made a good decision. You can't. It's just not there. So that no one can boast. Verse 10, 4, we're His workmanship. Like, I am His workmanship. If you're in Christ, you're His workmanship. And you've heard me say this before. It's a fantastic little song. I learned this when I was a kid. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took Him just a week to make the moon and the stars. You might have heard that song. The sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient He must be. He's still working on me. Right? I'm His workmanship. He took me from death to life. And He's working on me daily. He's winding this up. He's... Toning that down. He's cutting that edge off. Why? Because I didn't do anything to get it. I was broke. I was dead. And He raised me up to life so that anything good done in me is a result of His grace and His mercy so that the end result of my life is thanksgiving back to Him and praise to Him. So that in everything, He is everything. He's the middle, beginning, and end. And He receives all the glory. Because that's the issue in the garden. 
Who would be first? Who would be worshipped? God or Adam? Well, the answer to that is God. The problem is the curse wants us to believe it's us. And Paul wants these people to remember that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So let's take grace alone. What is grace alone? Now just, listen, you can go read this stuff. And I just, when we come to Luther, man, there's just so much there that's so technical. And, and I'm just to be real honest with you. I, I, I have a master's degree in this stuff. And I start reading this stuff. And I speak English fairly well. And these books are written in English. And I read a paragraph and get to the end and go, I read it. I heard it in English, but I have no clue what they just said. And so I'm not going to do that to you. Alright? So I'm going to bring this down to my level so that we can all understand some of this stuff together. So if you want to go read some of this stuff, you'll read some very technical language about Roman Catholic theology and some, some of the ways they combated it. And, and, and just take my word for it. If you want to go do that, go do it. I'll give you resources. I'll tell you where to go look. But I'm going to simplify it for me. Okay? So if you're reading uh, my notes or you're hearing what I'm saying going, well, he skipped over this and he didn't say this. By all means, give it your best shot. But I'm going to bring it to my level, okay? So that we can understand grace alone and faith alone because this was part of the problem. Part of the problem was academia ruled the church. And they did it in a language nobody spoke. And so people sitting in the pew were, number one, told they weren't priests to God. They're priests and only the priests were those standing up teaching. And number two, they're just supposed to do what they're told. And one of the great recoveries of the Reformation is, number one, the Bible in everybody's language. And number two, the doctrines of Scripture brought to a place that we can all understand together. And so the goal is that we would have these things affect us. Because here's what I've found. Academia often takes the simplicity of the text and ratchets it up to places only a few can have it. And I would say that's a misuse of academia. So that's not going to be what happens in here, okay? So we're going to keep it in the text and we're going to keep it simple because it's alone powerful. It doesn't need academia's help. It doesn't need your help. It doesn't need my help. It's alone powerful. So what is grace alone? Grace is, and here's my little definition, okay? It's God's undeserved or unfair favor. I prefer the language of unfair. It's God's unfair favor, in the form of kindness to and strength for. It's God's unfair favor. Why is it unfair? Because I was dead. I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. And by no effort of my own, He showed me favor. That's not fair. We often want to accuse God of being unfair because things don't go our way. May I suggest to you, anything short of hell is extreme kindness. It's unfair that God would be favorable to me. So what is God's grace? It is His unfair favor in the form of kindness to and strength for. Because what we see in the Scriptures is grace comes in God's favor. And although He doesn't address it specifically in this text, we see it in the form of power for. Because what we find here is we are His workmanship. 
And that is a powerful work of the gospel. Paul said this in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And if this gospel is God's kindness to me, it's also a powerful work on God's behalf for me. As the old song says by John Newton, Amazing Grace, right? You know that one? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then he goes on in another verse and said, This grace also will lead me home. It's grace that saves sinners like me, but it's also God's power that will make sure I get there. That's also good news for us today, right? So grace is God's unfair favor in the form of kindness to and strength for. The church was teaching that one standing with God was in Jesus along with my accomplishments or my works. How am I supposed to work? How am I supposed to do something to add to the favor of God? Well, they would say you need to attend the Mass. You need to make sure you take the Lord's Supper. You make sure you attended confession. You make sure you attended relics and viewed them. And they would find these things that they said belonged to Jesus or to Mary. And if you went by and saw them, that added favor to you. And then they came up with this scheme to build St. Peter's Basilica. And it was the selling of indulgences. And an indulgence was a papal letter given for money that would get some of your dead relatives out of purgatory. And purgatory was a place that they had made up. It's nowhere in the Bible, nowhere taught in Scripture, where a person goes who hadn't been exactly right to have that sin purged out of them for an unspecified period of time. So in order to guilt people who couldn't read the Bible in their language into giving money, they sold indulgences, letters from the Pope that got their people out of purgatory quicker And so if you bought this, merit was added along with the infusion of Jesus to help people along. Problem. Big problem. Very big problem. What do you think God thinks of our effort? What do you think God thinks of our works? Do you think there's a passage in the Bible that addresses that? Yes, there is. Isaiah 64, 6. If you've ever read Luther, I want to warn, if you, I'm sorry, if you haven't read Luther, let me warn you. He's crass. If you want to read Luther, don't read him with little innocent eyes thinking this is a sweet little devotional. He swears a lot. It's just true. I mean, you can judge him if you want to, but he swears a lot. And he's very crass. His illustrations are ugly. If Luther were a preacher today in modern America, he would be hated by all and deemed unfit for service. He drank too much beer, passed too much gas. True story. He Flatulence was a big... And I know that's funny for me because we're guys. Passing gas is just funny. Never stops being funny. Right? But Luther, he had he was a problem, man. He was a problem. So if you read him, he's going to cuss a lot. He's going to say crass things. He's going to call the Pope ugly names. And and and, and this passage, <laughs> Luther had some awful, awful things to say. And so I'm just going to read it, and I'm not going to discuss it. I'm just going to let you go with it, okay? Here's what God thinks about our works, okay? I'm not going to give Luther's commentary on it. It's awesome. But you need to go read that on your own, okay? Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
That's what God thinks of my works. Your best deed is a filthy garment. Okay. Alright. So therefore, therefore, buying indulgences, attending the Mass, going to confession, really, according to this passage, isn't doing an awful lot to help me along, is it? No, not at all. You see, the Roman Catholic Church thought that emphasizing grace alone cheapened justice and grace. And they believed it would give a license for people to sin. And so they didn't want people to think that their sin was dealt with because they didn't want people to sin. Enter this glorious biblical doctrine, Romans chapter 1 through 11, called justification. What the Bible teaches is we're not saved by the setting aside of justice. And they were saying, well, what you're doing is you're taking justice and you're, you're setting it aside, Luther. You're putting justice to the side as though it doesn't matter. And what Luther argued was what Paul argued in Romans 1 through 11. That we're saved not by setting justice aside, but by God Himself fulfilling justice. In other words, Jesus comes and He goes to the cross and He takes all of the Father's anger toward my sin and yours. He fulfills justice in Himself. And justice is served. And by God's grace, the sinner has their sin removed and Christ's righteousness imputed, not merely infused. I don't want to take a lot of time here, but that was a big difference. The Catholic Church said infused. Lutheran Reformers said no, imputed. Infused means you add it to works. Imputed means you replace your works with all of Christ's righteousness. Meaning you get all the benefit of Christ's righteousness and He takes all the negative effect of your sin on Himself. That's what the cross was for. Guys, that's exceptionally Good news. And so what Luther said and what the Reformers said is that sinners have their sin removed and Christ's righteousness imputed to them. That is, Christ's righteousness substituted for my sin. Infusion says we got some of Christ's righteousness. Imputation says we get all of Christ's righteousness that replaces my filthy rags. I want you to hear this. This is amazing to me. To my soul. And I hope it will be to yours. Grace is not free. Grace costs God everything. And that's why it can be free to me. (laughs) You see, grace isn't free. God Himself paid the price for grace. When He came in the form of, of man. And He came and we saw His glory, and He took on flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, we saw His majesty. And He went to the cross, and He died in our place for our sin. And put upon Him was the sin of the world. And it crushed Him. It killed Him. The Father Himself put the Son to death to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Justice was served. Justice was executed. cost God everything. It's free to you and I Because God paid for it. And so grace isn't free. It costs God everything. I get to partake of it freely because God paid the price for sin. Justice was served so that I could have Christ's righteousness with no effort of my own. We're saved by grace and we're kept by grace. And by grace we finish the race that God starts for us. Ephesians or Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will what? 
complete it. Listen, you don't have to make the completion happen. Jesus will make it happen in you. That's exceptionally good news. It's exceptionally good news. And He does it with desire. He does it with desire. This is where the Christian life plays out. This is where the rubber meets the road. Is God gives holy, healthy desires. You notice, in, in the new covenant work of the gospel, Jeremiah 31, the law isn't negated. He gives us a heart that wants to keep His law. So as we read His Word, like, man, I want to do that. I want, I want to be that. I want to act like that. That's good. That's the essence of the work of the gospel. Is He gives us a heart that wants to obey. And that's where the struggle comes is when we want to obey. But that stuff working in us doesn't want to obey and the conflict happens. Grace alone. Faith alone. What is faith? What is faith alone? Remember what we said last week? The key word in the Reformation wasn't grace and faith. The Catholic Church taught grace. They taught faith. They didn't teach grace and faith alone. It was grace plus your works. Faith plus your works. So what is faith and then what is faith alone? Well, here's faith. Hebrews 11.1 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It is the assurance of my hope. I'm assured that what I hope for is real and it is right and it's true and it is the conviction that is the outworking of those things even though I don't see them. Let me give you another way to think about it. Faith works itself like this. It's the knowledge of the truth. That is the information lands. The reformers had fancy Latin words for this. And I'm not going to throw them on you. Okay, Three components here to faith that we get out of Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the knowledge of truth. That is the information lands on our ears. And listen, if you do any type of evangelism... And I pray, this is one of my prayers for our church, is that you are engaged in making sure people hear the gospel. Listen, if you're not, we're disobedient. We need to make sure people hear this glorious message of good news as the Spirit then draws forth and calls people from death to life. But it only happens through the preaching of the gospel. You have a responsibility. Right? You've got to tell the good news. You've got to tell the good news. You've got to preach the good news because what happens, and you'll notice this, If you do any type of evangelism, you've had mostly failure and some success. That's a fact. That's a fact. Because if you had mostly success and little failure, the seats wouldn't be empty. True? True? Absolutely. If Roman Floyd County were truly preaching the gospel, we wouldn't have only about 20,000 people in church this morning out of 100. That's just a fact, Jack. Okay? It is what it is. We can like the data or ignore the data, but the fact is, if we're sharing the gospel, Jesus is going to save people. Okay? But here's what you'll notice if you're doing any kind of evangelism. You will tell the truth and the knowledge will land. And you'll notice it will have no effect. It's not because it's not powerful. It's because it's hitting the wall of the curse. It's hitting the wall of a dead heart. I got a chance to share with our friend who came and shared with us about Islam. And you remember what my friend said? You were here, he said... The imam said that the Muslim's heart dwells between fear of justice and hope of mercy. And if you're here that morning and you love Jesus, you were screaming in your heart, I know how you bridge that gap. Jesus! 
He takes justice and dispenses mercy. Just get Him right there and you can get saved. I got a chance to share that. And you know what? Nothing. Nothing. No faith. Boom. Bounces off. Why? Because sin is hard. Curse is ugly. And they're dead men walking. Right? And so faith has three components. Knowledge that enters the ears. It went in the ears. And there was even intellectual agreement and understanding that if what you say is right, that statement's true. There's intellectual understanding. So there's knowledge. There's The information gets in the ears. But then there's the assimilation of the truth. That truth goes past the ears down into the soul and does something. Starts working. It's like churning. Makes you have bad dreams. Makes you have thoughts. Makes you start doubting yourself. Makes you start going, hmm. So the soul starts assimilating that information. And then there's the personal trust in that truth. So it goes from information in the ears down into the soul to the acting upon it. It's the assurance of things hoped for, then the conviction, the outworking of those things that aren't seen. So faith is this information that comes in, it changes the heart, and produces actions. The Roman Catholic Church taught that faith was added to good works. In the Reformation, the Reformers asserted that faith stood alone as a result of grace. In other words, we can't contribute to our salvation at all. Here's what Luther said. Here's a quote for you. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where His is, there shall I be also. Luther goes on to say this, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That He suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Amen. Right? A couple more texts that deal with this whole idea of grace alone and faith alone without our works added to it. 1 Peter 2.10 Once you were not God's people, but now you are God's people. Notice there's nothing in between those two statements. You were not God's people, now you are. It's not you were not God's people. And you did really good stuff and you made God happy. And now you are. No, you were not God's people, now you are God's people. Why? Because of Jesus. You had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Hebrews 9, 24-26. I'm not going to take time to read, because I'll preach more on that passage. But if you read that passage, you will see that it is Christ's sacrifice alone, and His dispensing of mercy and grace alone, whereby people are made right with God. So the question then comes, where do good works belong? Because, I mean, truthfully, you may ask the question, okay, if I'm not saved by works, and if works don't earn me favor with God, what place does works 
have in the Christian life? And that is a good question. Where do works belong? Well, let's let James 2, 14 to 20 answer it. And by the way, Luther hated the book of James. Hated it. He called it a strawy letter. Meaning it was like chewing on straw. He didn't like it. Because he found that it conflicted with some of the things that he wanted to believe. Now, we're going to learn in a couple of weeks, Luther wasn't perfect. Luther had a lot of problems. Okay? One of it, one of it was his crassness and his swearing. But he had a lot of other problems. So Luther's not perfect, okay? He got his, his view of James is wrong. Okay? So I want you to hear what James says in conflict with Luther, okay? Because we don't worship Luther. We worship Jesus and Scripture alone, right? Tracking? All right, here we go. Here's what James says. James 2, 14 to 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his can that faith save him? That's a rhetorical question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled, now you ought to read that and go, ugh. All right? Transfer that over to some other things maybe we do. Mm, you don't have a home. You don't have a family. Mm, hope you find one. Whew. Ooh, ouch. Right? Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Right? <laughs> then he says in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, faith given by God produces work. It just will. Because if we have been saved by grace through faith, He has put a new heart in us that will desire to do God's things. Luther says this, Faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Works are a product of faith, or there is no faith at all. And you're probably like me, you're sitting there going, well, what are some works? Give me a list. You don't have time for that. What are God's works? Here they are. Right here. Here's the beautiful thing about walking with Jesus. It defies lists. He gave us His Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit will tell you? He'll tell you what you're supposed to do. He will give you the works that He wants you to do. One of the things I find absolutely amazing about Protestants in the West is they have this tendency to be exceptionally Roman Catholic. And that they will have this great idea for ministry, but they want to bring it to pastors for them to execute. Not realizing Jesus gave that to you for you to do. Because you also are a priest filled with the Holy Spirit, capable of obeying Jesus and having the supernatural work of the gospel at work through you in your community. So let me just go ahead and ruin your day. Ready? If you got a great idea, don't bring it to me. Don't bring it to Pastor Jim. Don't take it to Pastor Eric. Don't take it to Emmett, Josh. Don't take any of those guys. 
Start doing it tomorrow. Get up and get after it. And you will find that you're doing the works of God. Produced out of a heart of faith. Because He speaks to His people. This is why we call it domains of society. If you're engaging your domain, God will give you local and global opportunities to obey Him. Do you know that? He really will. He'll speak to you. And here's how He'll speak to you. He'll give you a desire so strong you can't ignore it. He will speak to you in ways that are terrifying. Not because He's terrible or He's scary. It's because what He's going to ask you to do scares the living daylights out of you. Because it's bigger than you. Go see Abraham. Go see Moses. These aren't special people. Moses couldn't talk good. He said, Lord, send my brother because I can't speak good. And God goes, negative, Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. You, sir. Abraham, leave the country and go to this place. Uh, okay. I got a good looking wife. What are they going to do about her? She's my sister. You read the Bible and you see all these incredible stories about God called normal people to do crazy things that scared the life out of them because it was bigger than them. Why? They heard the Lord. And listen, so I could give you a list of these are the works of God, but that would defy the work of the Spirit in you. What I want you to do is walk away, read God's Word, commune with Him, walk with Him, and the Holy Spirit will tell you what those works are. Now, I'll give you two very broad categories because Jesus gives them to us. When Jesus was asked, how do you sum up the law? Jesus said perfectly, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. The works of God coming out of faith will always look like loving God and loving your neighbor. Amen. So there's your two broad categories. Go fill in the blanks. But obey Him. Obey Him radically. Obey Him instantly. And watch the supernatural power of God at work in your life to do cool things. So... How can we obey? How can we obey? Number one, we can have confidence before God that He's for me. You can have confidence before God that He is for you. The spirit of legalism says, I must earn favor with God. And so therefore our works consist in efforts to get God to like me. So that He doesn't do bad things to me. The spirit of grace alone and faith alone says, Not only does God love me, He actually likes me. And He's not seeking to get even because He got even at the cross. He paid the price He demanded. So there's no getting even to take place, guys. Listen to me. This is exceptionally good news. God never gets even. He got even at the cross. And when we were dead, He made us alive and made us sons and daughters. And He doesn't get even. He's for us. So you need to take confidence today that God is for you. He's for you. He's for you. He advocates for you. He saved you. He will finish you. God is for you. Number two. We can treat each other graciously, not making each other earn favor, and we forgive offenses freely. Why? Because we didn't earn God's favor. And it's funny how Christians like to act. I'm convinced that when we try to make each other earn favor with each other, it's because we're trying to still earn favor with God. 
If you have received the unfair grace of God, there's no way you can turn around and demand somebody repay you for wrong offenses. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't He? About the guys who owed money. Remember that? One owed a lot and one owed a little. Right? And Jesus forgave them. But the one, remember this, the one who owed a lot went and found somebody who owed him something. And he began to choke him saying, give me what you owe me. And when the master heard about it, he called him in and said, I forgave you this great debt. How dare you go and demand that from him? And what's Jesus' point? You need to forgive. <laughs> right? You need to forgive. Yeah. Right? We can treat each other graciously because we've received grace from God and that creates this system of love. System's the wrong word. It creates this atmosphere of love in the church. When Jesus taught us, this is how the world will know your mind, how you love each other, is we're just gracious with one another, forgiving offenses because in Christ Jesus we've been forgiven. Number three, we can have assurance that we're God's children and we don't have to fear what waits for us after death. We have great assurance that we're His and we don't have to fear what awaits us. We don't even have to fear death because death is the slave of the servant of God to complete what Jesus started in us and we don't have to fear it. And we take great assurance in that. Number four, we have to do absolutely everything we can to get the good news to the ears of the people who need to hear it. You know what the Reformation produced? The Reformation produced this incredible movement of people to the nations. It produced things like the Moravians. Who, If you drive up to Chatsworth on the way to Fort Mountain State Park, you'll see a little brown sign ignored by most people. It says Moravian Mission Cemetery. If you've been here long enough, you remember I preached a biography sermon on the person who started that mission, Anna Kleist Gambold. A Moravian woman botanist who was the first successful work of the gospel among Cherokee Indians. Those Moravians are people who came out of this glorious work of the Reformation. Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Go read. Be amazed. Why? Because they rightly understood that I can't make somebody believe, but the gospel can. And so what's my task? Simply preach. So go, engage my domain. They didn't use the language of domain. She was a botanist. So what did she do? She used her botany to serve the Cherokee Indians and preach the gospel. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And we just skip over that stuff, not realizing that a witness to the faith is right under our noses. It's beautiful. And so the reality is for us, all we've got to focus on is getting the gospel to their ears. Jesus will take it from there. And I can I be just so bold to say he'll make sure you get where you're supposed to get and make sure the words come out of your mouth the right way too. He won't leave you to execute that alone. I promise you. I got story after story I could tell you in crazy places I've been where God did that for me. And so you don't have to make that happen. Just be obedient to go. And he'll be in charge of you getting there, making sure it happens. Making sure it goes deeper than the ear when he's ready for it too. But you have to make that glorious work your life mission. Is it in everything I do, I want to get the gospel to their ears. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. And then finally, as a people of God, we worship. I don't know if you remember, we did Bach 
You guys remember we did Bach, our biography? Was that last year? I've slept since then, so I can't remember what year we did what, but we did Bach. And this glorious work of the Reformation also affected music. It affected worship. Bach wrote what Bach wrote for the express purpose of facilitating worship among God's people. His whole mission and everything he did was to bring the people together around the gospel so that even the music and the words crescendoed in people's praise to the Lord. Removed distractions, did everything he could to just bring the focus up to Christ. Why? Why? Because grace alone through faith alone highlighted Christ alone. So that the people of God came together and worshipped the Lord. And you know what? That's what we do, right? This is why we put the main portion of our worship on the backside of the preaching of God's Word so that we can respond to God's grace to us. And so you know what we're about to do? We're about to engage in corporate worship. Why? Because God has been gracious to us through His Word to make Jesus known so that by grace alone and faith alone we can know Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And the Bible teaches us that thanksgiving to the Lord is praise. It is the worship of God's people. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to give thanks. Because it's the only appropriate thing to do. Worship is an appropriate response to the Lord's grace. To give us faith and rescue us from our dead state. So this morning, if you're in Christ, you didn't get yourself there. Jesus got you there. So I think it's appropriate you return thanks to Him. You want to do that? I do. Let's pray and then we're going to get after it. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would truly, truly, truly move our hearts to praise right now. Lord, I pray that you would remove distraction. I pray you'd remove barriers. I pray that you would move, remove anything, whether it be spirit or thought or deed, that you would remove those things from our attention to cause us to see savor, enjoy, and give thanks to Jesus. God, I pray you make that happen now. God, I pray that you would do that in such a way that your people take delight in you. May there be joy in us today. God, produce that, we pray. I ask that you would cause the truth of Jesus Christ to produce, as the writer of Hebrews says, the fruit of lips that bless your name. So Lord, even now, I pray that you would pull that off. Do that in this room, we pray. And we ask that in all of these things that Jesus would be glorified and our joy in Him would be full.